Greetings, friends, once again, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. This podcast is produced by Media Gratii, and for more resources like this, including a biographical film on Spurgeon's life and labours, you can visit mediagratii.org. You can also go to mediagratii.org slash podcasts to sign up for a weekly newsletter where you'll get the uh, weekly readings and then the featured sermon, the weekly selection, which is a uh, the topic of this podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at Reading Spurgeon and you'll typically get some uh, daily quotes from the day's sermon. So this week we're reading from Sermon uh, 731 through to 737. Our featured sermon is 734, The Dawn of Revival, or Prayer Speedily Answered. For next week, then it's 738 through to 744. And the featured sermon, if you want to read ahead, is Grieve Not the Holy Spirit, 738 in the sequence on Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. But for this week then, the dawn of revival or prayer speedily answered. This sermon was preached on the Lord's Day morning of the 10th of February 1867 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. The text is Daniel 9:23. At the beginning of thy supplications the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. This then is the uh, declaration of the angel who came to speak to Daniel as he was praying. Spurgeon begins by telling us that prayer is useful in a thousand ways. It is spiritually what the old physicians sought after naturally, namely a catholicon, a remedy of universal application. There's no case of need, distress or dilemma in which prayer will not be found to be a very present help. He goes on to talk about some of the benefits of prayer, a great key which opens mystery. Luther, an example of a man whose best understandings of Holy Scripture were not so much the result of meditation as of prayer. And Spurgeon confirms that all students of the word will tell you that when the hammers of learning and biblical criticism have failed to break open a flinty text, oftentimes prayer has done it and nuggets of gold have been found concealed therein. So uh, Spurgeon's introduction here begins with a general statement about prayer. Now he uh, moves on to explain that Daniel's prayer was answered at once. Now that's not always the case, but it was in this instance. I think that's a really important qualification. Spurgeon isn't saying if you're a really godly person, then God will answer your prayer immediately, but if you're not, then he won't. His point is that prayer sometimes tarries like a petitioner at the gate until the king comes forth to fill her bosom with the blessings which she seeks. The Lord, when he's given great faith, has been known to try it by long delayings. True saints have continued in patient waiting for months, and there have been instances in which their prayers have even waited years without reply, not because they were not vehement, nor because they were unaccepted, but because so it pleased him who is a sovereign and gives according to his own pleasure. Spurgeon reminds us then that unanswered petitions are not unheard petitions. God keeps a file for our prayers. They're not blown away by the wind, but are treasured in the king's archives. There's a registry in the court of heaven in which every prayer 
is recorded. So really important that when we uh, get into this sermon and we understand what Spurgeon is saying, though he is celebrating the rapidity, the immediacy with which Daniel's prayer was answered, he's not suggesting that that's always going to be our experience or that the speed of our answer depends upon uh, our character as if we've earned an answer to our prayer. Nevertheless, he does want to emphasise the fact that in Daniel's case, this man greatly beloved, there was no waiting at all. And in his case, the promise was true. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. So Gabriel comes so rapidly and even the flight of an angel was hardly swift enough for God's mercy. And it's that emphasis then, that desire, that expectation, that uh, eagerness for an early blessing in answer to prayer that Spurgeon wants to focus upon. Two points then press for consideration, he says. Firstly, the reasons for justly expecting so early a blessing. And secondly, the forms in which we earnestly desire and hopefully expect it. First, have we any reasons to expect that at the commencement of our supplications, at the beginning of our prayers, the commandment of mercy will come forth? Spurgeon says, yes, if we're found in the same posture as Daniel, for God acts towards his servants by a fixed rule. So we do need to examine ourselves as to our state and condition. You might say, didn't you just say that that's not the basis in which prayer gets answered? I did, so listen to how Spurgeon now picks this up. He says, first of all, God will hear his people at the commencement of their prayers if the condition of the supplicant be fitted for it. Now, what is this fitness? What is this appropriateness? What is it about Daniel in his posture in prayer that, that made him obtain this blessing? First of all, Spurgeon says, Daniel was determined to obtain the blessing which he was seeking. And he emphasizes here the need to be determined, to be fixed, to be committed to a particular outcome. We never do anything in this world until we set our faces thoroughly to it. The warriors who win battles are those who are resolved to conquer or die. The half-hearted man is nowhere in the race of life. He's usually contemptible in the sight of others and a misery to himself. If a thing be worth doing, it's worth doing well. And if it be not worth doing thoroughly, wise men let it alone. So here's this uh, demonstration of manly vigour, we might say. One fiery Luther is of more value than twenty like the half-hearted Erasmus who knew infinitely more than he felt and perhaps felt more than he dared to express. A man then, if he would do anything for God, for the truth, for the cross of Christ, must set his face and with the whole force of his will resolve to serve his God. Never, never shall a man be unsuccessful in prayer who sets his face to win the promised mercy. If there be but a dozen men in this my church who have set their faces for a revival, we shall surely have it. Of this my heart knows no doubt. We must not fail in the setting of our face towards the Lord. I humbly but devoutly ask God, the Holy Ghost, to give you, my beloved in the Lord Jesus, both men and women, members of this church, a solemn resolution that in the work in which we are engaged for God, you will not be satisfied unless the largest answers be vouchsafed. 
So those are just a few snippets from quite a long paragraph in the printed sermon where Spurgeon is emphasising the need for God's people, men and women, to show this vigorous, fiery, determined spirit in seeking after a blessing that is worth obtaining. Next, he says, Daniel felt deeply the misery of the people for whom he pleaded. He he, he didn't just see it. He wasn't just recording the griefs and the distresses of God's people in exile. It weighed upon his soul. And so says Spurgeon, I want you, my brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus, to get a clear view of the wrath of God which threatens your own children, your own friends, your fellow seat holders, people who are um, paying to get a seat in the church. That's one of the ways that uh, they they got their, made their giving. Uh, your neighbours, he goes on, your kinsfolk, unless they be saved. If you could get into your heart as well as into your creed the sincere belief that the wicked shall be turned into hell with all the nations that forget God, if you could recollect that even those who hear the gospel have no way of escape if they remain impenitent, and that if they reject Christ there remains nothing for them but a fearful looking out for looking for of judgment and of fiery indignation, if your soul could be made to melt for heaviness because of the woes of lost spirits, and because of so many, so many of your fellow men will within a little while be lost, lost as these others are, past all recall, beyond all hope or all dream of alleviation, surely you would become awfully earnest about souls. Now I've I've mentioned that we've had some long paragraphs. That's also a long sentence. I think that reflects perhaps something of the preacher's spirit on this occasion. He seems to be really carried along with a, a sense of the weight of this need. And the even the forms of his speech are communicating that. That's an important point for us who are preachers to remember and for those of us who hear preaching regularly that the, the truth ought to have an effect. It ought to have an effect upon our gestures, upon the tone of our voice, the pace of our preaching, uh, the very uh, structure of our sentences, the very form of our words, the vocabulary for which we reach. It's going to have an impact and you, you feel it here in these great rolling sentences and these uh, heavy, repetitive paragraphs from Spurgeon's sermon. Then he goes on not just this deeply felt misery for the people on whose behalf he was pleading, but his own unworthiness to receive the blessing for which he was asking. He lays bare his heart before the Lord, says Spurgeon. He tears off every film from the corruption of the people. He exposes the wound to the inspection of the great surgeon and asks him to send it health and cure. Daniel then enters in to the needs of these people. And he acknowledges sins of commission, sins of omission, and especially sins against the warnings of God's word and the entreaties of God's servant. His, his point is that none of these people, and neither he himself, are entitled to the blessing. This is a confession in his praying. And Spurgeon says, every person ought to confess, individually, in families, in business, in private and public lives. Each man, he says, has a point of sin in which he's separated from his fellows, some distinctive transgression. Each man must therefore make his own confession apart, with the fullest honesty, with the deepest humiliation, 
and each one must add to his acknowledgments the humble prayer, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. So there's this uh, awareness, this consciousness of the, the sinfulness of sin and the preacher's dependence uh, in himself, the prayer's dependence, I should say, on, on God for mercy, not for merit. Then Daniel had a clear conviction of God's power to help his people in their distress. This lively sense of divine power based upon what God had done in the olden time. We worship the God, he says, who loves his chosen people now, just as he did of old. And in the same way as Daniel then looked back and said, if the Lord has blessed in us in the past, will he not bless us again? Can he not now do what he's done before? In the same way, though we do not deserve to be visited by God's love, we are still his people, still the sheep of his pasture, still called by his name, still bought with his blood. This is the, the expectation. If we're sensible, if we're aware of past mercies to the church of God and to ourselves personally, then shall we be ready to receive present mercy. But he says the most apparent point about Daniel's prayer is his peculiar or distinctive earnestness. Really interesting, he says, to, to multiply expressions, to say over and over again things like, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, may not always be right. There may be much sin in such repetitions, amounting to taking God's name in vain. I think that's an important point, uh, because very often you, you hear people who use God's name or names, usually it's one name, as some kind of filler in their praying, a, a, a kind of a verbal punctuation. And often they'll settle on one particular name or title. And so you hear people who, who will pray, Lord, that the Lord would give us, Lord, what we really need, Lord, and that you, Lord, would give us, O Lord. And you think, ah, it's, it's not meaningful language. Or again, uh, think of somebody, and Father God, we just pray, Father God, and we would ask you, Father God, now is God our Father? Yes. Is it proper to speak to him as our Father God? It is. But to overuse is to abuse that kind of title. But Daniel's repetitions are forced from the depths of his soul, and they sound natural and proper. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. These, says Spurgeon, are the fiery volcanic eruptions of a soul on fire, heaving terribly. It is the man's soul wanting vent. Variety of expression, here's the other side of that argument, sometimes shows that the mind is not altogether absorbed in the object, but is still able to consider the mode of its utterance. What he says is sometimes these finely constructed prayers with their, their clever sentences and their rolling periods may actually show that you're not really praying. He's saying, if you've got enough time to think all that through, then is your soul really taken up with the fact that you are at prayer with the God of heaven? When the heart becomes entirely swallowed up in the desire, it cannot stay, it cannot wait, delay to polish and fashion its words. It seizes upon any expressions nearest to hand, and with these it continues its entreaties. So you see how Spurgeon's actually helping us here with regard to our praying. 
it's not wrong to be broken in speech as well as broken in heart. Times when we're praying and we we can't find the words to say, but our hearts are groaning. Times when, when we're, as it were, battering on the doors of heaven. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. There's there's a an earnestness, there's a an intensity in that form of expression, like a child in trouble who's shouting, Dad, 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 help me, Dad. It's 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 the proper way. It's it's what it should sound like. And no prayer is at all likely to bring down an immediate answer if it be not a fervent prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. But if it's not fervent, we cannot expect to find it effectual or prevalent. We must get rid of the icicles that hang about our lips. We must ask the Lord to thaw the ice caves of our soul and to make our hearts like a furnace of fire heated seven times hotter. If our God is a consuming fire, can we have communion with him until our souls grow to be like consuming fires too? Unless we are warm with love to God, we cannot expect the love of God to manifest itself in us to its highest degree. Now, says Spurgeon, I have seen in some here, he's talking about the people in his own congregation, I have seen in some here present such godly zeal, such holiness, such devotion to the master's business as Christ himself would look upon with joy and satisfaction. But there are others who are members of the church who never enter heartily into our projects of labour, yet nor yet unite with our solemn assemblies of prayer. What shall I say of them? If I were to speak sharply, they would only say that I scolded them with severity, and that might not serve my turn, for I desire their best interests. You, you see the tension. If he says, where are you when we pray? Where are you when we work? Then they're going to say, you see, He's just snapping at us. He's shooting us down again. So he says to them instead, My dear brothers and sisters, if you are indeed with us, if you have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, we do beseech you, ask the Lord to make you more earnest than the most earnest of us have ever been, and to make you, if you've been laggards, that is, if you've been hanging back and going behind, now to take the front place. If you've been slow, either in the generosity of your giving or in the earnestness of your pleading, ask the Lord that you may henceforth double your pace and do more in the time that remains for you in this life than others might be expected to do who have not aforetime been so backward as you have been. From pastoral experience, I can tell you that probably the people to whom he's speaking were just as annoyed and angry with him saying it like that as if he'd scolded them with greater severity. But the point is still well made. His desire isn't that these people would be uh, trampled upon, but rather that they would step up in their prayers and then in everything else. And the sum of it, he says, is this. If the whole church in this place should be brought to set its face, to be conscious of the deep need of sinners, to confess its own sin, to be mindful of God's mercy and to be vehemently, passionately in earnest for a blessing, I cannot for my own part see the slightest reason why at the commencement of the supplication the commandment should not go forth. This then is, is Daniel's qualification and you notice that it, it doesn't lie in him and in his own personal excellence. 
but rather in his consciousness of the need of sinners, his consciousness of his own sin, his mindfulness of God's mercy, and his earnest and passionate and vehement entreaties for a blessing. Spurgeon says, if we preach like that, then we too may see, not always will see, but may see the same kind of answer. Now he's still in his first point. Remember that he wants to talk first of all about the reasons to expect that we shall have this command of mercy come forth rapidly. He said that there were reasons in Daniel himself and in his disposition, his posture. Now he says there are also reasons when you think about the mercy itself. So not just your spirit in asking, but the thing for which you ask. And he says, if I understand your hearts and my own, we want to see our own personal piety deepened and revived, and we want to see sinners saved. A brother once remarked in prayer, he says, that none of us would let our spouse ask again and again for any good thing and refuse her. If it were in our power to give her anything under heaven, we would feel it our greatest delight to do so. And shall the bride, the lamb's wife, find her husband less kind than we poor evil mortals are to our wives? No, if Christ's church pleads with her own husband, she cannot be refused. So if we're asking something that God delights to do, if we're, we're asking effectively the sun to shine, there's no great challenge in expecting the blessing. This is, this is to desire the good of those to whom God in Christ intends good. And what we ask then is ultimately for God's glory. We're not seeking to be lifted up ourselves. We're not seeking some uh, man, some mere creature to be exalted. We're not wanting a victory in battle. We're not wanting uh, success as a thinker or a writer. Human prowess and human wisdom is out of sight. We seek that which will put crowns upon the head of our gracious God and we seek it with the one pure desire that he may be glorified. So then that mercy, the fact that it is God-like mercy that we crave, that it is according to the, the desires and the dealings of God with his people and ultimately, ultimately for the glory of his name. That's another reason why we can expect a swift answer. And then there's a third thing which encourages Spurgeon and which should encourage me and you, and that's the nature of the relations which exist between God and us. Now, this is where that phrase, O man greatly beloved, comes in. You might say, well, I understand why God should send so swift an answer to Daniel, because he was a man greatly beloved. It, it is almost our instinct to think, well, there's merit in here somewhere. And there is, but it's not Daniel's. You, my dear brother, as a believer in Jesus Christ, will not be at all presumptuous if you apply to yourself the title of Man Greatly Beloved. In other words, if you stand in Christ in relation to God, then you are beloved. God has shown mercy to you. God has had patience with you. God has watched over you. You've been called and kept. He says, I know this when I look back upon my own life. I must confess my unworthiness and acknowledge my sin most sincerely. And yet I dare to feel and to say that I am a man greatly beloved of my God, for he has given me such distinguished mercies to enjoy. 
when I have deserved not even the least of them, that I cannot help saying he crowns me with loving kindness and tender mercies. So our status as God's beloved people is not a claim to merit, but it's rather a declaration of mercy. Come boldly, brother, come boldly, sister, for despite the whisperings of Satan and the doubtings of your own heart, you are greatly beloved. And Jesus says, ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. So then, he says, I need to move on. I wanted, and here's a a bit of a preacherly adaptation. And again, good for us if we step back from the substance for a moment, just to think about the, the style and the structure. He said, that was my short point, but I've used up most of my time on it. I wanted a long time on the second and therefore a few minutes must suffice. Uh, I'll just have to use the the little bit of time I've got left. And uh, a poetic complaint rather than curses upon that clock. Oh, swift winged time, I could fain delay thee when such a theme is on hand. Well, I I doubt many of us in the pulpit are going to declaim in quite those tones today. Oh, swift winged time, I could fain delay thee when such a theme is on hand. But I think there is something here, and again, it's good to recognise that when a preacher's taken up with his theme, he is going to get carried away with it. And all the complaints about the fact that he's uh, taking too long and uh, you know that he's going on, he's not fond of the sound of his own voice. I hope he's not. He's preaching the truth as it is in Jesus. He's taken up with his theme. And here's Spurgeon, and here's the wisdom for a preacher saying, okay, I've Uh, overextended that first of my two points today. Now I need to show a little bit more self-control in the second. And that means that we too need to press on what form should we prefer to receive that blessing? In what form should we prefer to receive that blessing? If we're going to get this blessing quickly, if it's going to come to us as we begin praying for it, what are we looking for? Well, says Spurgeon, I could crave a blessing for every one of you. That's really one of the great things, that the entire church of Jesus Christ will receive divine favour in particular ways. I wish the blessing would come on me at the commencement, that I might preach with more power and pray with more fervour, and that my own spiritual life might be of a more healthy and vigorous character. So he says, uh, as as a preacher, that's what I desire, that's what I want, that's what I'm eager for, that's, uh, that's my, my, my hope and my eager expectation that I myself will obtain something of a blessing. But then what about the other servants of the church there, the deacons and the elders? I pray that you may be made examples to this flock, true guides in this our Israel. Other workers for Christ will be here this afternoon that the Holy Spirit would fall upon you. The Sabbath school teachers, may you weep in your classes today. Pray for your children before you begin to talk with them. How many times do we pray for our Sunday school teachers that they'll be weepers over souls before they are speakers to souls? May my dear friends who teach our great classes of men and women have a rich blessing. There was a a lovely woman in the congregation there called Mrs. Bartlett and another brother called Mr. Hanks. And, and Mrs. Bartlett and Mr. Hanks, they were the, the leading lights in teaching young men and women. And they had hundreds of people who would gather under their instruction. Oh, says Spurgeon here, think of the scope, a blessing for everyone who serves Jesus Christ. It would be a great token for good if this very day we felt the first waves of a great revival. 
I wish the Lord's power would come upon some of his people who do nothing, that they may be dreadfully miserable this afternoon, that they may be so unhappy that they cannot keep at home, but be compelled to start out and do good. Remember those people who we thought might get a bit annoyed earlier on? I think they're really wound up now because he's, he's preaching, he's, he's, he's looking this congregation of hundreds, thousands in the eye, as it were, and he's saying, if you're sitting here and you are inactive and passive, then I actually want you to be miserable in the best and truest sense so that you, you say, I have to do something for Jesus Christ. But what about those who are working? Oh, may God help you to work with heart and soul, not doing it officially as of routine, but doing it with your very life as though your heart's blood were warmed in the work and your soul's breath were in every word you spoke. You who do so little, oh, may the master constrain you to amend your ways. It would be a very blessed sign of grace if every one of us felt this day, perhaps there is something more I could do for Christ. I shall do it at once. That's a... That's a blessing. Now, I think some of those people might not feel it at first a blessing, but that's the blessing that the church needs, that all of us would be ready to do all that we can. Now, that doesn't just mean mindless activity. It doesn't just mean getting into a routine, a a habit of uh, some kind of formal engagement. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to do the same thing but it does mean that everybody will do everything that they can. This is such a dark world, says the preacher, that we must not waste the tiniest piece of of candle. We are all priests to Jesus Christ, and you should act like it and not say, as so many do today, I might add, well, we've got a minister, let him serve God for us. I think one of the downsides of the American phrase is uh, having people on staff having paid employees uh, so often, is that many Christians, I think, are almost inclined to or, or directed to imagine that Christian work is for those who are paid to do it. And the spirit of voluntarism, the spirit of, of uh, willing engagement of every member of the church is perhaps being undermined by this. Spurgeon says, I will have nothing to do with your responsibilities. Serve God yourselves. It is as much as I can do to serve him. Only by his grace am I upheld under my own load. In fact, my own responsibilities are so heavy that I cannot bear them. But as for being a proxy for any one of you, standing in your place, he means, I cannot be anything of the kind. If you've been bought with blood personally, if you hope to enter heaven personally, then you should consecrate yourself personally. And if you do that, oh, what a blessing it will be. This will be the the desire that that we we have for the the work in the kingdom of God. And then the other thing that he desires, and with this we need to conclude, some conversions. Oh, the children of the church members. What a blessing that would be. The salvation of our sons and our daughters. Pray for them, he says, parents. Pray for them. Pray now and the Lord will hear you. What about your wife, your dear brother? You've prayed for her for so long. Or sisters, your husbands who are still in the gall of bitterness. Would it not be a special favour if the Lord would give us our dearest friends? What about the seat holders? Remember them? The people who just uh, turn up Sunday after Sunday, who've got their place booked, as it were, given the system that they used. 
He says, some of you have just been sitting here for years. You've, you've felt the power of the gospel in a measure, but you've never given up some darling sin, which may yet prove your everlasting ruin. Oh, he says then, may God give us your souls this day. It would be no small mercy if the Lord would give us many of the casual hearers who will be here tonight or are now here this morning. Perhaps you you can think of that in your own congregation, no matter how big or how small it may be. Your children, Lord, give us their souls. This wife, this husband, this father, this mother, this brother, this sister. People who turn up Sunday after Sunday, perhaps, or, or from time to time, and yet there's no movement in their hearts. There's no profession of faith. There's no change of life. There's no testimony in baptism. There's no joining in and serving with the church of Jesus Christ. Oh, says Spurgeon, for a mighty cry for such as this, a prevailing cry, a heaven-shaking cry, a cry that would make the gates of heaven open, a cry which God's arm could not resist, the cry of all the saints here, knit together in love with holy vehemence, using the great plea of the atoning sacrifice and making this the burden of their cry. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In wrath, remember mercy. Brothers and sisters, should we not then plead with God like this? You hear again what we said before and what Spurgeon himself has been saying, that his repetition that, that really is natural, that carries along his sense, a cry that is mighty, a prevailing cry, heaven-shaking, a cry to make the gates of heaven open, a cry which God's arm could not resist, the cry of all the saints here, the burden of their cry, O Lord, revive your work. Shouldn't we be praying like this for ourselves? praying like this for the congregations to which we belong, that the Lord would bless us and in blessing us glorify his name. So now let us say in his sight, if he doth not please to hear us at the commencement of the supplication, yet it is our desire to wait upon him until he does. There's that balance again that he picked up at the beginning. God can answer immediately. We pray that God will answer immediately but we are so committed to these blessings that we will not cease even if the blessing does not immediately come O thou our beloved if the day do not break nor the shadows flee away if thou wilt still remain hidden behind the mountains of separation yet we wait for thee as they that wait for the morning and watch and long as the warder watcheth for the rising of the sun but make no tarrying, O our God, make haste, our beloved. Be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Betha, for thy name's sake. Amen. Well, that uh, sermon is as much of a prayer as a sermon, and Spurgeon's as much of a prayer as he is a preacher in the course of those things. I trust that that's an incitement to us, a holy incitement and exhortation to become real prayers ourselves. Why don't we commit to pray? Why don't we pray, even as you hear these words, that God in his mercy would be pleased to give you, and that right quickly, an answer to such prayers as these. Lord, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon everyone who's listening. Have mercy upon the churches to which we belong. Revive our hearts, O oh God, we pray. And when we come back, Lord willing, on another occasion, uh, next week, as we've said, Sermon 738 on grieving the Holy Spirit. May God bring us back with hearts that have been 
brought low on account of sin, but lifted up on account of grace to the praise of the glory of his great name.